You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Election College, Episode 165. Executive Orders by the President. Let's throw a political party. Face it, the political scene sucks, but did it always? It's time for Election College, and class is in session. Now, your hosts, Jason Goff and Ben Smith. Jason, if you have been paying attention to the news at all in the last couple weeks, or... In the last couple centuries, <laughs> you know that executive orders are a really hot topic that everybody seems to have an opinion on, but what do we really know about them? Yeah. I mean, for a lot of us, a month ago, we felt one way about executive orders, and then the next month, meh, it's a horrible thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's so conflicting because, you know, sometimes executive orders, and we're going to get into what they are and everything, bear with us, we're just chatting now. Executive orders can be a super great thing that can get stuff done really quickly, and yeah, it probably is the nation's intent. And then there's other times where executive orders go against what seems like the will of about half the people in the country, or, you know, thereabouts. And, you know, what what that feeling and sentiment is can vary based on who the person executing the executive orders is. So, man, lots of stuff to say. We are a history podcast, and we're going to talk about history and, of course, in, uh, include the present. But we want to give everybody who's listening just a very broad overview of how executive orders in general work. Right, because this is nothing new, folks. And you can say, well, elections have consequences. And you know, in the last couple of months, we've been emphasizing the fact that there are three branches of government, and that is very important that all of us do our civic duty, our citizens' duty as Americans to be represented. And I know I have, for the last, well, ever since November, have been thinking a lot more about being more engaged locally and when it comes to the federal government being more engaged with, well, what is my congressman doing? What are they doing when they leave town? They head over to Washington and are they just playing pinochle? <laughs> are they just riding the train back and forth uh, to their office and kind of chilling? Or are they actually doing things in my interest? But elections do have consequences and you hear that every four or eight years. And it's totally constitutional because in Article 2, Section 1, Clause 1, the Constitution says that the president, he or she is the executive, and they can, quote, take care that the laws be faithfully executed. And 
they've got to do it. It's their constitutional duty. <laughs> Jason, real quick before we move on, does anybody actually play Pinochle or is that just always used as an exaggerated term? I don't know. It's kind of like Batgammon. Does anybody know how to play that either? But I think <laughs> Pinochle is a lot more fun to say. It, it, oh, yeah. It's definitely more fun to say and more fun to figure out how to spell, I think, as well. So Yeah. So most executive orders, uh, you know, they use these reasonings in the Constitution, such as the term of executive power in Article 2, or the fact in Article 2, Section 3, that if they don't uh, do things, they can be impeached, et cetera, et cetera. And they're saying, hey, these are part of my sworn duties as president. I, you, you put me in place because you thought what I uh, was going to do was in the best interest of the country. I've been elected by some sort of vote, whether you want to call it popular, whether you want to call it electoral, it depends on the year who is in favor of what. But, uh, you know, really the, the the president through executive orders is trying to do things that are within their uh, vision of what the best interest for the con- country is. So, uh, you know, if, you, if you're not doing what's best for the country, you're going to be pretty well impeached. You're going to be kicked out. You're going to be <laughs> under a lot of scrutiny. You're going to be talked about on election college in like 40 years or so. Right. So if you can't support your executive order in the Constitution, uh, you shouldn't do it as a president. And you know you either have to have the clause granting a specific power or Congress has to say, yeah, this power, it belongs to the president and therefore they can issue executive orders. You know, the funny thing about all of this and for our astute election college audience, there's nothing new about having different interpretations of the Constitution. Even the people who wrote the thing had disagreements on how it was to be carried out. So for some reason, and this is going to sound really strange, but I find a lot of (laughs) comfort in knowing that we've been wrestling through this for the past 200 and well almost 41 years 241 years my goodness and we still are trying to figure out states rights we're still trying to figure out the role of the federal government we're still trying to figure out the roles of each branch of government because really and what we've seen in the last couple of weeks is can the judicial branch tell the executive branch what to do? What does the legislative branch have to do with all of this? And the three are really finding themselves in unique situations that, well, maybe it's not that unique. Maybe it's all just coming to a head because the public is a little more aware of what's going on. Um, It's a struggle. And I think we're going to be okay. Yeah, I think you're right, Jason. And just for anybody who's listening in a month or six months or a year or who knows how long in the future, uh, we're recording this at the end of January of 2017. So, of course, (laughs) you know, you got a new administration coming in. No matter who it was, it was going to be controversial. And, of course, executive orders at the top of everyone's mind. Because, you know, anytime a president comes into office, they issue a bunch of executive orders 
and so they're controversial and et cetera, no matter who it is. So that's why we're talking about this, and we want to bring you into the fold, knowing about uh, what has happened in the past. So let's start with George Washington. George Washington, you know, he's probably the the most perfect president we've ever had. So of course, therefore, he issued zero. Mm. Z- zero, absolutely, no, uh, presidential directives, executive orders. No, no oh. that's not right. Okay. Every Sorry president, Ben, except William Henry Harrison, because he was kind of sick. Well, he he was alive for like six minutes. So. <laughs> but yes, yeah, so every president except William Henry Harrison has issued some sort of executive order. And really, it was just like, okay. You're the president. Issue the thing. (laughs) And people kind of went along with it. And here comes 1863, and President Lincoln says, hey, we are going to free all of those who are enslaved in the states that have allegedly, and I say allegedly because the federal government never did recognize the secession of those southern states, (laughs) but the Emancipation Proclamation was an executive order. Yeah, so real quick, I don't think we actually explained what executive orders were, and sorry for anybody who hasn't figured it out by now, but (laughs) executive orders are basically the president says something that may or may not be within their rights, depends on your interpretation of the Constitution and how the law works, and they say something and sign it into effect, and then it becomes the law of the land, essentially. So, like Jason was saying, President Abraham Lincoln in 1863 signs the Emancipation Proclamation, which was an executive order, but no one, of course, would nowadays say that that was, well, not no one, I can't say that. Very few people nowadays would say that was a bad idea. And yeah, it ended slavery as an institution, at least. And we all look back on that and we're like, yeah, go Lincoln, exercise that executive power that you have. Uh, Go ahead and outlaw something that half the country depends on in order to function. And so, you know, until the early 1900s, executive orders as we know them now were mostly unannounced. They were unseen. They didn't have documentation necessarily along with them. Uh, The agencies that took care of the things that were impacted by the executive orders were the only ones who really knew about them. And then in 1907, Department of State comes along and says, hey, um, we need to back catalog some of these things, like the Dewey Decimal System or something. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, in 1907, that started happening. And, well, the 20th century saw all kinds of executive orders being issued. Um, man, FDR. Yeah. <laughs> over 3,500 executive orders. Can you believe that? It's like how many executive orders like every other day of his presidency. Now he was president oh man for yeah. you know three and a half terms. Um right. But wow. Yeah, and I mean you know, FDR institutes a lot of things that are controversial, a lot of things that are still in place today, uh, a lot of things that were admittedly by everybody kind of a bad idea for our country and some things that went really well. So, you know, uh, executive orders can can be great at the time and then horrible 60 years later, or they can be terrible now and great 60 years later. So uh, w- what are some of those things, Jason? I mean, the first one that we really hear about a lot was the fact that, hey, 
banks, um, you're going to have a holiday uh, on, on this day, and you're not allowed to release any gold bullion or coins. Um, sorry, that's just how it's going to be. It, yeah. it, we're in the, the depression. Uh, people need to quit hoarding it. So you're off today. Everybody loses their pay or something like that. And you can't issue it. And that's, you know, that's one of the first executive orders that we really hear a lot of controversy about. Yeah. And the next year in 1934, the Supreme Court said that the National Industrial Recovery Act was unconstitutional. And FDR was like, I don't believe that because that's my, that's kind of my, one of my gigs, right? So (laughs) I'm going to have by executive order, say that, quote, by virtue of the authority vested in me under the said Emergency Relief Appropriation Act of 1935, that the National Emergency Council is going to administer the functions of the National Industrial Recovery Act. And boom, we're going to do this. And, well, what do you do? You say, okay, Mr. President, do it. <laughs> we see it. <laughs> and there's some others, you know, I mean, we talked about over 3,500 executive orders, but some were under FDR that just seemed like, well, of course you would do that. You would have a national day of mourning or a national period of mourning uh, when a president dies and that the flag should be lowered to half staff. We can credit FDR's executive orders for declaring that, that that needs to happen. But uh, as early as the 1930s, it kind of ticked off the Supreme Court that the president would make such an order. Well, it didn't hurt FDR uh, whenever he, you know, he's president for like half a century and all the Supreme Court justices start dying off. He appoints like eight of them, maybe six, something like that. He appoints a, appoints a bunch of them and... You know, of course, they're all going to be at least leaning towards his side. Uh, I think George Washington's the only one who has more of an influence since he appointed all of them to begin with. Uh, but FDR, you know, he he can kind of sway he swayed the country in his direction, uh, which I don't I don't know. I wasn't alive to know if that's a, a positive or negative direction at the time for the country, but uh, certainly had a lot of influence. And then he's like, hey executive power over here. You get an executive order. You get an executive order. Everybody gets an executive order (laughs) because I'm FDR and I do what I want. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes Congress may not agree with the sentiment of the American people and executive orders, well, kind of have, I don't want to say overruled, but they've overruled (laughs) what Congress has said. And, Some examples came after FDR uh, dealing with civil rights. You know, it was Harry Truman who signed an executive order that said that the armed forces would be integrated. And Ike, Dwight D. Eisenhower, he wrote an executive order saying that public schools should be desegregated. So... You have everything from flying flags half-mast to desegregation. And this was all done by executive order. Yeah, and then, I mean, FDR also um, put in the into place the executive order, which 
made it so that Japanese Americans, and in some cases, German Americans, who had been here their entire lives were put into essentially what amounts to internment camps uh, during World War II. And, you know, we would look back on that now and say, yeah, that was a travesty. That was a that was an injustice to those people. Um, that sucks that that happens. Yeah. But at the time, uh, the country sentiment as a whole said would have said, yeah, that was that was needed to make sure that we were safe. Uh, so history has a way of showing us things that we wouldn't have seen in the moment and at the time. Yeah. And sometimes with executive orders, you'll have one president who says, hey, I'm going to do things this way, and it it's just going to be the way it is. And an example is when George W. Bush, he issued an executive order in 2001, which restricted public access to the papers of former presidents. And, well, that didn't make the Society of American Archivists very happy. <laughs> uh, so Barack Obama overturned that. It was one of the first things he did when he came into office in January of 2009. He revoked George W. Bush's executive order. So the archivists everywhere are happy with Obama because of that. <laughs> He's like, I swear I will do a good job as president. Also overturn that executive order by George W. Bush right now before I even get off this platform. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, Jason, I guess what we're trying to say here, basically, I mean, everybody knows this is right. If a president issues an executive order, that's it. It's done. Nobody can change that. President is supreme ruler, chancellor overall, right? Well, kind of, but not. <laughs> In 1935, the Supreme Court said, eh, 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 FDR, uh, you can't do this. And they actually overturned five of his executive orders. And in 1995, President Clinton tried to prevent the federal government from contracting with organizations that had strike breakers on the payroll. And an appeals court, a federal appeals court, ruled that that order conflicted with the National Labor Relations Act. And so they invalidated the order. Yeah. And so other ways that, you know, things can be overturned by a federal court, a federal judge. Uh, they can do things that can that can kind of upset the norm. Uh, Congress can pass a law that actually overturns the executive order just because the law says something that invalidates the executive order. So, you know, the government that we have, as imperfect as it can be sometimes, still has all these checks and balances where uh, if everybody is doing their job, uh, hopefully not a lot of things get through that are unconstitutional or against the entire order of the country. So, uh, yeah, sometimes things are going to happen that aren't everybody's favorite thing. And sometimes things are going to happen that we might just say, yeah, that was that's downright not OK. Um, but the good thing is that as long as there are people in different places, um, whether the... <laughs> Whether the executive order is hugely popular or hugely negative, um, we know that there are people who are going to be looking out for the best interests of the country. Yeah. So I guess to sum it all up, what we know about executive orders is that it's the way for the president to act quickly and, well, for at least a period of time, things get implemented very fast until somebody finds it unconstitutional or against the law. 
Yeah, Jason, a lot of the uh, the wars or I guess quasi wars that we've been in have actually been started or uh, not started, but uh, entered into by executive order, such as, hey, this country just attacked us. Therefore, we're going to retaliate with troops. Um, that's my executive order as president. And then later, Congress gets to actually vote on whether or not we're at war and stuff like that. Uh, sometimes they don't ever vote, and that's just by executive order the whole time. But that is one of those instances where uh, if you are a, a believer that the country should defend itself but with military force, you would say, yeah, I'm okay with the president doing that because for Congress to get together and make that decision that we need to retaliate might have taken too long. So, uh, you know, a lot of times that can be a- another, depending on your point of view, good or bad thing. Yeah. Sure. So there's an extreme issue of a president using executive order, and that is to go to war. And Bill Clinton actually waged a war (laughs) through executive order. He bypasses Congress altogether because he saw the conflict going on in Yugoslavia as a national emergency. And uh, he said that, well, this area is a war zone, and in the interests of the United States, we need to act. So he said that it was his constitutional authority to do something about this. And he delegated command and control of U.S. forces and NATO. And um, he said when the troops would go in, and he said when the troops would stop. So he did this all without congressional approval. And so whether you agree with it or not, Clinton bypassed Congress altogether and it's largely seen as his conflict rather than the United States. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, Jason, you know one executive order that I think we should probably issue is that all of our listeners need to go over to our Patreon page, which hopefully by now you've you've visited, and uh, sign up. You can uh, go over and support us. A lot of you have said you wanted to be able to support us in different ways. And you know you can you can get in for under eleven or about eleven cents an episode. Uh, you could pop up to thirty four cents an episode and do three dollars a month. That's really all that is. And uh, support us, and you know we'll reward you with different things as we go. Uh, but that's really helpful to us. It really uh, helps us be able to continue to support the podcast. You can find that over at electioncollege.com slash Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N. The link is here in the show notes. Yeah, and as always, we appreciate all of the great reviews in iTunes. If you'll head over to electioncollege.com slash review, oh, it'll take about 28.9 seconds to actually click on the five-star rating and another 35.7 seconds to type out a couple of sentences expressing your love for the podcast. We really appreciate it. I'm going to go ahead and uh, sign this executive order to visit our Patreon and to leave us a review. And just while I'm at it, I'm going to slide in there to go ahead and interact with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where we love to discuss things with you. We love it when people send us articles, give us suggestions, uh, or just respond to our posts, because sometimes you send it out there and you're like, I know people saw it, but it feels lonely in here. So get on over (laughs) and uh, show us some love. We would appreciate that as well. Yeah, and we'll see you next time.
Our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live.